So, I think there comes a point in all of our lives where we come to a crossroads and we're faced with a decision. Which road to take? Two roads going in two very different directions. The first road that we see quickly curves around and disappears from our view. We can't really make out where that road leads, but from what we can see, it doesn't look all that enticing. In fact, it's really a stretch to call it a road because it's more of this kind of dusty, dirty, bumpy path. And it certainly doesn't appear like very many have traveled down that road. And yet, our hearts seem drawn to it. Almost like we belong there. Which scares us. And then there's this other road. And it runs as far as the eye can see. It's like this real nice paved stretch of highway that's well lit and well marked and there's neon signs and cool looking attractions all along the way that certainly captures our attention. This road, that seems like it's going to be way easier to take our journey down that road. At least a heck of a lot more fun than the other one. So as you stand there in the crossroads trying to make a decision, it's a no-brainer, right? But if that's true, then why is it that so many people that have chosen to go down that big paved highway seem so unhappy? And then at the same time, why would anybody choose this more difficult path? I mean, life's tough enough, right, without trying to make it any more difficult? What do you choose? I think the poet Robert Frost put it best when he said, two words, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that, that has made all the difference. Morning, y'all. Glad that you're here. Uh, today, we are actually concluding a series that we've been in for the last eight weeks or something uh, entitled, Why I Follow Jesus. And um, I, I just want to say, like anything that we teach here at Westridge, our intention is not to try and tell you what you should or should not believe about something. We're simply facilitating a conversation to help you to look at issues that affect your belief system so that you can put it all together and create your own faith that is uniquely your own. And so, that being said, the question of the morning is, have you figured it out yet? Why is it that you follow Jesus? Or it may be more appropriate to ask, why don't you? 
As a way to build some context around this question, I'd like to read for you a story from the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, which is a story about those people who first were faced with a decision of whether to follow Jesus or not. Gospel of Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats and the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus chose his favorite place to speak from, which is Lake Gennesaret, and you may be more familiar with the, uh, the other name for it, which is the Sea of Galilee. And it's a beautiful spot. In fact, ancient Jewish literature says uh, that the Jews thought so highly of the beauty of this lake, they used to say that while God created the seven seas for all of humanity, they, he, that he kept Lake Gennesaret for himself. Jesus loved it there. He did many teachings from there, and it was probably the most popular spot for fishing in the entire region. It was here that Jesus would feed the 5,000. It was on this lake that he walked on water, and so it seems appropriate that it would be here that he would make this the place where he would call his first disciples, who just happened to be fishermen. By the way, while this scripture makes it appear kind of random, I would be willing to put money on the fact that it's anything but. Because did you happen to notice whose boat it was that Jesus was teaching from? Simon's, who is later referred to as Peter. This is his first encounter with Jesus. Okay? And it seems that Simon and his brother Andrew and his other fishing buddies, James and John, were all out spending a very long, unsuccessful night fishing. They came up short, and they were seemingly there, coincidentally, cleaning their nets, hanging out, just wrapping things up so that they could head for home, when all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and starts teaching, coincidentally, right in front of where their boats are. And the Gospel of Luke says that while he was teaching that the crowds got so large and they got crowded near him so much that he ran out of shoreline and so he jumps in the boat, which just happens to be Peter's boat. And so Peter goes from kind of this innocent bystander in the whole thing to all of a sudden becoming like a captive audience of Jesus' teaching because it's not like in the middle of Jesus' sermon that Peter can say, hey, Jesus, i got to go like, you know, wrap this sermon thing up so I can get out of here. Now, what you have to remember is that Jesus is just now coming onto the scene, and not very many people know who he is. But even so, the Gospel of Luke indicates that Jesus' teaching is so wildly popular, even at this early juncture, that there are like thousands of people gathered there to listen to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about that 
is that if you're a Jew, and most of his audience in that moment was, and you want to hear the Word of God, you don't go to the Sea of Galilee to hear some newbie teacher talk about the latest radical ideas. You go to the temple. Right? You get the impression that Jesus' teaching was something more of like a Woodstock festival than it was like a pastor standing behind a pulpit in a church Minus, of course, the sex, drugs, and Jimi Hendrix. But what was it? What was it about this guy that was so compelling that people were crowding around him so closely that he actually got pushed to have to even speak from a boat because he was so wildly popular? What is it that he had to say that was so different? Well, in that culture, in the harshness of those times, Jesus brought ideas that had never been heard before. Jesus said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Jesus wasn't teaching religion. He was teaching hope. He was teaching love and compassion and grace. When Jesus started teaching, the people were drawn to him. And that passage goes on in chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, and says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full of fish that they began to sink. So when Jesus is done speaking, he says, hey, let's all go fishing together. And I'm sure... Peter is kind of annoyed by this whole thing because, you know, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, you're a carpenter. I'm the fisherman here. And, you know, you stick to what you do, and I'll do what I do. And instead, he's kind of respectful, and he tries to drop a big hint for Jesus and says, me and the boys, we've been out all night. We're professionals, haven't caught a thing. Tonight's probably not a good night. Why don't we bag it and do it some other time? But Jesus insists and says, nope, let's go. And then I'm sure that it irks Peter when Jesus then takes the next step and tells him where to put down his net. Like, seriously, you're telling me? And it says that when they did, 
they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, and there were so many fish that the boats began to sink, and all of a sudden, just like that, Peter knows. He's not having some random encounter with Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. Peter all of a sudden gets it. He's standing in front of Jesus, the Son of God. And it goes on in verses 8 through 10 and says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, for from now on you will become fishers of men. I love Peter's response here because it's just so honest. Isn't it? Like when he realizes in whose presence he is standing, he doesn't all of a sudden try to make Jesus think that he's some great guy or that he's some moral person or that Jesus would be better off with him than without him. He just drops to his knees and says, I am a sinful man. I'm not deserving of your love. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew what comes next is that Jesus says these haunting four words that will change their lives forever. When he looks at him and says, Now, come and follow me. Simple as that. Come and follow me. And it says that when he does, they pulled their boats up on shore left everything behind and followed him. They didn't say, Jesus, let us go and make a little money first and then we'll come and follow you. They didn't say, Jesus, let us go and do our own thing for a while while we're young and then we'll follow you. They didn't say, Jesus, let us go and sell all these fish that we just caught, make some, you know, get some good money, and then we'll catch up with you later. It says they dropped everything and immediately followed Jesus. Who does that? They didn't even blink. They just did it. What am I missing here? I mean, I have to tell you, I still hem and and make excuses for not following Jesus when I want to divert from the path and do my own thing. Don't you? What was it about Jesus that was so compelling that they were willing to drop everything that meant something to them and leave it all behind just to follow him? I can tell you this. Jesus never, ever promised that following him wouldn't cost something or that it would ever be easy. In fact, the scriptures talk way more about the pain and the hardships and the sacrifices of those people who are trying to follow Jesus than it ever does trying to 
attempt to paint a picture of the Christian life as one of being just kind of coasting through life where everything is all good all the time. Because that's not real life. Or at least it's not my life. And yet, so many people in the church have this kind of expectation of the Christian life as one of being this prosperous life. Where everything, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be all smiles and no problems. And if you have any, then you know what? You probably didn't have enough faith to begin with. Which is ridiculous. Let me tell you something. The main difference between following Jesus, someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't, is not whether or not I'm going to blow it, because I am. It's not will we hit problems or difficulties or hardships or will I fall at times because I will. It's when that stuff happens, how do I get back up? It's what my next step is that makes a difference. It's do I have the strength and the faith to step back on that path and pick up my journey where I left off and continue on the path that leads to Jesus. That's what makes all the difference. And that's why Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. He doesn't mince any words about that. I have to tell you, the Christian life in this culture is a tough life. Following Jesus just to be honest with you, does not come naturally for me. I don't see it as an easy life. For me, at least, it's a lot of work. I have to work hard to stay focused on my relationship with God. I have to work hard to stay committed to following Jesus with my whole heart. I'm a pretty hyper guy, So the whole idea of be still and know he is God is really difficult for me. I'm a pretty prideful guy, so the whole idea of repentance and admitting my faults and my weaknesses and then submitting my will to a God that I've never seen before is not easy for me. I have never ever read in my Bible where Jesus promises that if you follow him that everything's going to come up roses. And it's going to be easy. In fact, I read in my Bible just the opposite. That it is going to take everything that is inside of us to scrape and to struggle to find the faith, to make it across the finish line of this life with our faith left intact. In the book called A Case for Faith, the author of that book interviews some well-known scholars in an effort to discuss their positions about some of the most difficult questions posed in the Christian faith. But the interview that stood out for me was nothing that contributes to that intellectual conversation. It actually was one that was quite personal between the author of the book and this gentleman who was a self-proclaimed agnostic. 
The interesting thing was that this person that he interviewed was actually once a very, very strong Christian who fell away from his faith. In fact, he was a very well-known pastor at one time, and his name is Charles Templeton. Templeton actually worked with a guy that you may have heard of, Pastor Billy Graham. And he and Billy Graham would travel around the United States and in Europe, and they would preach to crowds of thousands of people, and they would teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Templeton went on to actually start his own church up in Canada, where he would preach every Sunday to you know, thousands of people. He was a very committed follower of Jesus. But after several years in the ministry, Charles Templeton entered into a faith crisis that he could not pull out of. He was struggling with his beliefs and many tough questions that he couldn't get satisfactory answers to. And in fact, he tells of a time when he was reading a National Geographic magazine and there was this picture of this woman who was standing in Africa holding her baby up to the sky who was dying because they were experiencing the worst drought they had ever seen in centuries. And Templeton says that it occurred to him that there's no way that the God that he's been preaching about, the God of love that he's been teaching about for all these years could actually really exist because there's no way that the God that he knew would ever allow that baby to die when all it needed was a little rain. Overwhelmed by doubts, Templeton resigned from the ministry. He rejected his faith in God and became a self-proclaimed agnostic. In fact, he went on later in his life to write a book called Farewell to God, Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith which is a very angry book against God and a bitter attack on the Christian faith. And so as the author of the book, A Case for Faith, sits down with this gentleman, Charles Templeton, who's now 83 years old, he discovers that he's actually dying. And during the interview, Charles Templeton sticks to his story of how he left his faith how he spent the bigger part of his life speaking against Christianity and his anger toward God, he says, came through loud and clear. The author says that most of the interview was just a very harsh and abrasive discussion about God and the Christian faith. And he says he was almost demeaning when he, when he talked about the fact that he could not understand how anybody could ever place their faith in God. But there came a point in the interview where everything changed. And that was when the author asked Templeton what he believes about Jesus. And he said in that moment, it was like there was almost a different person that was sitting in front of him. His whole demeanor changed. He said it was as if when he began to talk about Jesus, he, talk, he was talking as if it was somebody that he deeply loved and admired. 
But the interview ended abruptly when Templeton surprisingly became overwhelmed with emotion as he was talking about his feelings toward Jesus. It's a really powerful interview, and the way that I'd like to close this morning is just to read you the excerpt from that interview that I find to be incredibly insightful. So this is the author of A Case for Faith speaking with Templeton, interviewing him, who is a self-professed agnostic. And so the author says, when I asked Templeton about Jesus, Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a softer and more reflective tone. His guard seemingly down. He spoke at an unhurried pace. Almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. Jesus was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. And yes, yes, he was tough. He had a righteous anger about him, but that was because he cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of, every, of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people who have lived, but Jesus, well, was Jesus. The author says, that's when Templeton uttered the words that I never, ever expected to hear from him. He said, as he was talking about Jesus, he said, and if I may put it this way, as his voice began to crack, he said, I just miss him. I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself, and I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. And after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively and finally Quietly but adamantly, he insisted, Enough of that! And with that, he ended the interview. I've heard the audio recording of that interview, and I have to tell you, I bawled all the way through it. Because you could just see a man who had this tension between his reason and his faith. And I think that the reason why 
it was so moving for me is because I so see myself in him. I have questions. I have skepticism. To be brutally honest with you, I have my doubts. But when I think of Jesus, it changes everything. And I'm not sure what it is, but there is this tugging at my heart that says it's true. Through my some 47 years of living, I've learned a thing or two about traveling the narrow dirt path that leads to Jesus. I've learned that it's not an easy road. And it's quite easy for us to lose our way. And there's no guarantees that every one of us will finish. But I've also learned that no matter how difficult the Christian life is, to follow Jesus with such a focused intention, where there's a sense of mission and purpose and passion about Him, there really is no better life. And I've learned that while it's not the easiest road, it's the one that I am committed to come hell or high water. That is the road that I will finish my journey on. I made my choice. And I'm not living my life to build wealth or power. I would leave everything behind if I had to just to follow him. I'm committed to taking this dusty, dirty, bumpy, narrow path to the very end where I hope that one day I'll see Jesus. I just need you to know that I don't follow Jesus because I have to. I don't follow Jesus because I'm afraid of hell or that I have no other options. I don't follow Jesus because this is just the way that I was raised. I follow Jesus because when I don't and I fall off that path, I just miss him. You know? I miss him.